0: Folks, Dr. Travis McMackin here. Welcome or welcome back as the case may be. Thank you for choosing to spend a bit of your day with me. I hope that I can at least help you to think some interesting thoughts. I'll be back with you in a moment after the music ends. Today I'm going to be talking about this book by David C. Steinmetz, David Curtis Steinmetz. You see it right there at the bottom by my fingers. Reformers in the Wings from Geiler von Kaiserberg to Theodor Beza. And this is the second edition of this book. It was originally published back in the 70s, I believe. And I've had this sitting on my shelf looking at me for quite a while, and I um, found myself displaced from my office for one reason or the other a couple weeks ago, and I grabbed this book on my way out the door and went and sat and started reading it, and then finished it up pretty quickly after that because it just kind of sucked me in. And uh, I really enjoyed reading it and just kind of buzzed through it. Um, if, don't be confused by the title. Um, if you look at the table of contents and you read the subtitle from uh, Kaiserberg to Beza, and you look in the table of contents, there's a whole part four that comes after Beza, uh, part four on the radical reformers. But if you look at the chronology, these are uh, the first and the last people chronologically, not in terms of the table of contents. But um, the radical reformers section was actually one of the sections that I found most illuminating um, basically, what this book is, it's a series of uh, biography studies on particular figures and their contribution to the whole uh, Reformation area intellectual environment. And so you get these biographical sketches as well as their key intellectual contributions. And these are all folks who are kind of out of the way on the side, not the major figures. Uh, that everybody who takes a Reformation class in college is going to come out uh, knowing the names for. These are all the supporting cast, so to speak, of those folks that most people remember from the Reformation period. And there were a number of folks that I was familiar with in here already, but there's also a lot more with whom I was not very familiar, and that's uh, always uh, good to expand your familiarity. And I teach a Reformation class. And it's, I'm always find it exciting to dig more into these secondary figures and try to work that kind of content in. Um, I want to talk about just a few different things that I found particularly helpful. But just in terms of who is in here, uh, that is interesting. You've got Gasparo Contarini in here. Faber Stapulensis. Uh, I, I don't use this name for him, so it doesn't roll for me. Faber Stapulensis, uh, otherwise known as Jacques uh, Lefebvre de Tape. Um leading French Evangelical figure. Reginald Pohl's in here if you uh, like the English stuff. Um in here. Uh, is in here. Johannes uh, Brentz is in here. Vermily, uh, Bunger, um Schweckenfeld, Huckmeyer, Uh, and so on. So lots of great secondary figures that, if you know the basic contours of the Reformation, uh, but want to expand and broaden your knowledge, dig into this book, and that'll help you out. Um, Steinmetz, the author, is also the author of a book named Calvin in Context, which is another really great book. And in each of these books, he does an excellent job of situating his figures in the socio historical and intellectual environment of the time, he's really, really good at that late medieval, early Renaissance period uh, context stuff. And in that way, he's very similar to um, uh, Heiko Obermann. Uh, Heiko Obermann, was the uh, brief tribute to him was the subject of the first ever video I posted on YouTube, Uh, so you can go and check that out. But Obermann and Steinmetz uh, are similar in that way, very sensitive to uh, socio-historical and intellectual contexts when they're dealing with these Reformation figures. Um, Just to dive in a little bit to a few of the uh, more interesting bits in the different people, Hans Denk, uh, one of the radical reformers, had an especially interesting bio. He was primarily a school teacher, and uh, Echolimpedius and Basil took an interest to him, and even after a number of Denk's uh, theological positions fell into question, and he received a demand for an apology, an explanation of his views, uh, Echolimpedius seems to have accepted the document that Denk turned in without reading it or without much caring, because it it clearly expresses Denk's views, uh, and Echolimpedius uh, let it sail through. But another thing that interests me about Dank is he uh, great emphasis on human responsibility and the way that this made him push back against predestination and the idea of a concealed will of God so that, sure, God wants everybody to be saved, but God only decides that some people will be saved. Dank wasn't a big fan of that idea. And neither, come to think of it, was Karl Barth. And um, the Basel connection is what interested me here because Barth is from Basel. Barth spent a great portion, the last portion of his career in Basel teaching. Echlempezius uh, in Basel, so I wonder how much of this is sort of in the theological water for the tradition there, the Reformed tradition in Basel. So that was uh, an interesting piece for me. I also appreciated Steinmetz's discussion of nominalism in the context of Johannes Geiler von Kaisberg. Um and he had this great line on page 11 where he says that, quote, the God of the nominalists is the faithful God of the covenant, end quote. The God of the nominalists is the faithful God of the covenant. And if, if you kind of just dabble in Reformation studies, the idea of nominalism comes up a lot in connection with people like Scotus and um And, and it's, uh, it has a whole lot of different philosophical angles attached to it and philosophical commitments. And uh, there was a generation in Reformation studies that spent a lot of time wringing their hands over, was nominalism a good thing or a bad thing? And then, depending on your position on that question, whether or not or to what extent it influenced the Reformers. So you get a lot of uh, Catholics, for instance, uh, who are primarily Thomist and don't like nominalists, they will want to say that the Reformation is a nominalist movement. Or then you might get some Protestants who are kind of interested in certain aspects of nominalism, and they want to say that the Reformation is a nominalist movement, and that's a good thing. And then you've got the very careful people like Obermann and Steinmetz who come in and say, no, here's what theological nominalism was really all about. Here are the very complicated ways that it influenced um, uh, Reformation theology and provided the backdrop for Reformation theology. And so you get a lot of that in the chapter on Johannes Geiler von Kiesbren. So uh, just for that, it's uh, worth the price of admission to this book. Also, uh, Gasparo Contarini. I've, I've been fascinated with Contarini for a few years. Uh, there's some of his stuff that it's possible to get in translation. Um, I don't know Italian, or it, and I don't read Latin uh, well, if at all. Uh, so I'm, I'm reliant on translations for that stuff. Contarini, uh, to provide some context, was uh, a cardinal. He was one of a number of cardinals in the late 1530s who were commissioned to put together a report on the need for reform in the Roman Church, Uh, and uh, they sent in a report that was actually pretty uh, damning uh, and calling for a number of uh, reforms, especially in the area of morals and uh, practice, and a lot of that uh, got then worked into um, the Council of Trent in different ways. Uh, But Contarini was also interested in theological reform. He never broke with Rome, and he wouldn't have pushed it that far. Uh, But he worked on this concept called uh, double justification, which he got from the work of another guy named Johann Broker. Um, But Contarini was actually at the Regensburg Colloquy, And the Regensburg Colloquy was kind of the culmination of a lot of talks that were happening in the Holy Roman Empire between Catholic and Protestant theologians trying to find common ground. Bootser was really involved in it. Melanchthon was there and involved with it. And though he doesn't play a big role in Steinmetz's telling of it, Calvin was also there and involved in it. Bootser brought Calvin as kind of one of his support staff. And that's where Calvin and Melanchthon met and uh, became friendly uh, and, you know, formed the, the relationship that they would carry on then through letters through the rest of their lives. But the problem with uh, what happened at Regensburg is they used this concept of double justification and basically it allowed them a way to say, yes, justification is a thing that happens once for all, and justification is a thing that keeps happening. So what in Protestant theology is then going to be the distinction between justification and sanctification is getting worked out in this context as double justification. And then in Tridentine theology, the the Council of Trent, it's all just justification with no differentiation. And that's what, uh, for instance, if you read Calvin's antidote, he calls it an antidote to Trent, um, his response to the sixth, session number six on uh, justification, he's making this distinction uh, in there. But Contarini at Regensburg is working with this concept of double justification. It gets proposed at the Council of Trent, But it gets rejected. And Contarini unfortunately died before Trent, and so he wasn't able to be there to represent it himself. Um, So they're working out this double justification idea, but then both uh, the Pope in Rome and Luther reject it. And so it's sort of dead in the water. So for a little while, the people who were involved in this conversation thought they had really hit on something thought they had made a breakthrough and then it fell apart and for calvin for instance this is still pretty early in his reforming career it's five years it's it's 1541 it's five years after um he published the first edition of his institutes uh it's about the same time he's publishing the french translation of his institutes after the second edition he's done his Romans commentary but still lots of work left to do this is when calvin kind of lost hope that you would be able to get the Protestant churches and the Catholic church, uh, the, what would become the Roman Catholic church, back together. Uh, so that was a watershed moment. Contarini was there, and he was an important part of it. Uh, Contarini is a really interesting figure, a humanist uh, figure, as many of these reforming uh, uh, folks still in communion with Rome were. And then, as I mentioned, Faber uh otherwise known as Jacques Lefebvre de Tappe, um, French evangelical, uh, part of the Mo circle protected by Marguerite of Navarre, uh, King Francis uh, I's sister. Um, William Farrell, uh, who would then uh, convince Calvin to stay in Geneva and contribute to the reforming work there. Uh, Farrell was part of that circle. Uh, Calvin met uh, Détap, Stapu uh, Lensis, once. We don't know what they talked about. Calvin didn't really talk about it much, uh, but he met him once. So this, kind, this is the kind of French humanism that really, really, really influenced Calvin. And uh, Steinmetz highlights everything that Faber did in terms of biblical interpretation. So you get a lot of emphasis on Scripture's power and um, the ability to understand Scripture being derived from the work of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is really the one who makes Scripture effective and who helps you understand Scripture. And so uh, if you've ever read uh, that portion of Calvin's Institutes uh, in Book 1, it's it's right around the neighborhood of Chapter 7 in Book 1. He starts talking about Scripture and and working this stuff out. There's lots of resonances there with what Calvin will go on to do. So it's interesting to get that kind of uh, background here. From Steinmetz on uh, Jacques Lefebvre de so I appreciated that. But there's there's tons of other great stuff in here as well. You get a discussion on Bullinger, uh, who uh, succeeded Zwingli as a leader of the church in Zurich. Uh, you get a discussion of Bullinger on the covenant. Uh, covenant theology really comes out of Zurich more than Geneva, and so it's interesting to track different emphases there, uh, and you can kind of track in contemporary Reformed theology uh, where different um, denominational bodies or confessions uh, fall on that spectrum. Also, Peter martover Vermili, um, a scholastically trained theologian who becomes a Protestant and, and works in a number of different places, including England, uh, during the protectorship of Edward Edward uh, reign. He worked especially on the Lord's Supper, and so Simons brings out all of the stuff on the Lord's Supper and the way that Vermily worked out to talk about the physical elements in the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, functioning as means of grace. Um, Calvin had a, a relationship with Vermily, they stayed in correspondence, and there were a number of times when Calvin would get a question about the Supper and say, you got to just have to go read Vermily, the Supper belongs to Vermily, he's the one who's got that all worked out. Also, Butzer, uh, the important uh, reformer in Strasbourg, uh, an important mentor to Calvin, uh, ecumenical wheeler and dealer, also spent the last part of his reign, or his life, uh, in England. Um, Both Vermili and Butzer had to go to England because of the uh, interim uh, in uh, Germany after the defeat of the Schmalkald League. Uh, So that's why they were up there. But Butzer, uh, what Steinmetz brings out in Butzer is The interaction between church and politics and uh, how that gets worked out. And again, there's some interesting connections here to Calvin, as you would expect. Bootser was an important mentor to Calvin, as I said. But also, uh, Steinmetz brings out the way that this is an articulation of a kind of social gospel. That's how Steinmetz puts it. It's a kind of social gospel. And I find that interesting. It's good language for it and also then fruitful and really relevant for us today. So, that's some of what's in here. It's just scratching the surface. There's lots of great stuff. And I was thinking about um, how this book uh, could be useful to those of us who uh, teach uh, in the area of theology, whether in the academy or in the church setting. I mean, If you've got people uh, who are Protestant and they want to know more about where they come from, uh, give them this book. It's really accessible uh, and easy to read as these kinds of books go. And uh, it covers the Lutheran uh, secondary, it's, it's again, secondary figures, but it's got a chapter on Luth- the Lutherans, it's got a chapter on the Reform, it's got a chapter on the Radicals, uh, it's got a chapter uh, on Reform-minded uh, Cap- Catholics. So uh, it gives you really that well-rounded picture of what's going on in the conversation. Uh, and Steinmetz is a master of it, uh, so that's that's one way you could use it. Just people who are interested, it make a really good study in a uh, adult education context in the church because the chapters are relatively short, often under ten pages. So um, you would be able to expect an educated layperson to uh, work through uh, one of these chapters and then come in and talk about it uh, on during an adult education opportunity on a Sunday morning, for instance, or midweek. Uh, So you could use it in that environment. I've been thinking about my own Reformation course, and I think that the next time I teach that course, I'm going to make sure to get students access to this book, and I'm going to have them give presentations at different points throughout the course where they will pick one of the figures, one of the chapters in the book, and uh, present on that chapter to their classmates And This will be a way of bringing in a lot of these wider voices that I don't necessarily have time to lecture on, or we don't necessarily have time to read those primary sources and discuss them, but we'll be able to bring them in and hear their voices uh, through this process. One critical comment that I would have is there aren't uh, women in this volume. Um, if you're going to talk about Reformers in the Wings, you really should talk about the, the different uh, women uh, who contributed so much to the Reformation, either as wives, but then especially as writers in their own uh, in their own case. So uh, people alike, and I am blanking really hard all of a sudden on the names. Uh, Katarina Schutzel is the big one. There are others, Arugula von Grumbach, um, that should be brought in and made part of these conversations Um, So I wish Steinmetz had uh, filled it out that way. Uh, If anybody ever comes along to make another book like this, uh, I would love to see that included as well. Uh, Make it even more effective in the teaching environment to get even more voices and more important voices that need to be heard today, especially into the mix. So it's a good book. It has its limitations, but it has very real value and uh, very real opportunities for use. And I would recommend it uh, as a very nice piece of scholarship. So once again, David Curtis Simons, Reformers in the Wings from Guyler von Kisberg, Theodore Beza, I've been talking about the second edition, and I hope you'll go out and take a look at it. So uh, thanks for hanging out. I hope you enjoyed and learned something, and we'll check out the book. You've been listening to the McCrackencast. I am and hopefully will remain Dr. Travis McMackin. I do all the production work myself, in case you couldn't tell. But the music is by my son, Connor. Until next time, think interesting thoughts.